Welcome to City Church. We are a biblically-based, relationally-driven, spirit-led church, encouraging everyone to follow Jesus, grow together, and serve others. We're excited to share this sermon with you today, and you can always find out more about us online at citychurchseville.com. For those of you that have been with us for a while, we, you know that all last year the sermon or the topic was on one thing, the kingdom of God. This year it's on one thing, the kingdom of God, how do you live in it? And that deals with the Sermon on the Mount. So all this year, we're methodically working our way through the Sermon on the Mount. Now, when you get near the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, you will discover that Jesus teaches us what's known as the kingdom prayer. If you're from a high church background, it would be known as the Our Father. Others know it as the Lord's Prayer. But Jesus actually gives us the prayer of his kingdom. And so what we've been doing every single Sunday, and we're going to continue this um, for a long time to come, we always stand together and say the Lord's Prayer together out loud. So here we go. This then is how you should pray. Our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth in Charlottesville as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. You may be seated. What's interesting to note is that Jesus gives what's called the Sermon on the Mount. By the way, in the Gospel of Luke, it's known as the Sermon on the Plain, not airplane. Those weren't invented yet, but on the flat spot. We know that this was most likely Jesus' road sermon. He taught this probably everywhere he went. But this is the inaugural announcement of his kingdom. And what Jesus is doing is he stands up on a mountain and he delivers what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And it's in exact simile to Moses standing on a mountain and receiving the law of God for a new people. So Jesus, in the exact same way, stands on a mountain and he casts a vision for a new kingdom of which he is the king. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is. And what's interesting to note, though, is that the last of the Beatitudes, the blesseds, is blessed are the persecuted. Now, we're going to get to that in just a moment. But one of the ways to read the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus is answering something that has been asked by the famous thinkers of the Greek world. And when you begin to think about blessed are the persecuted, you begin to think about life and what motivates you. So I've got a few quotes to help us. Elizabeth Elliot, whose husband became a martyr, said there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. Martin Luther King Jr. said the following if you've got nothing worth dying for, you've got nothing worth living for. Albert Einstein said, only a life lived for others is a worthwhile life. Mark Twain said the following, 
What are the two most important days in your life, the day you are born and the day you find out why? And then Socrates said, the unexamined life is not worth living. And what you have is you've got a trend that has been with humanity since the beginning of time. And that is the question of life or the questions of life. If you were to look at Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, these are the philosophers that were between four and 300 years prior to Jesus. But they asked the question, what is the good life? What's the good life? And some of us who read the Beatitudes believe that Jesus is actually answering that question. What is the good life? And he brings nine blesseds. Now, as a quick recap, here's a few of them. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, and peacemakers. By the way, if you look at that list up on the screen, blessed are the poor in spirit, that means people who are in abject poverty spiritually. You see, when Jesus is delivering this inaugural sermon where he's casting a vision for a new kingdom of which he is the king, he begins by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. That word in Greek means to be crunched over, to be burdened by your poverty. In other words, you would look at this book and you would look at it and go, I know nothing that's in between these pages. Might as well be written in Greek and Hebrew. I know nothing. And Jesus, in his inaugural announcement of his kingdom, says, if that is you, and you know nothing about God, because my kingdom is now here, blessed. You're blessed. You're going to have a shot at this. Then he goes on to say, blessed are those who mourn. I can promise you none of us got up this morning and said, I'm in for a good cry because I'm gonna lose something that's so precious to me that my soul will split in two. You see, all of the blesseds are announcing an upside-down kingdom. Everything Jesus mentions as blessed is something that you want to avoid. Last week, Aaron Herman preached a brilliant sermon on blessed are the peacemakers. I wanna kinda take a little bit of what she said in her sermon and bring it together with blessed are the persecuted. Now, I would say that none of us got up this morning and said, what would make my day is a good persecution. Yet I was taught that the way to read the Beatitudes is these are things that you have to have in your life in order to be blessed. It's not what Jesus is doing at all. Because his kingdom is so radically different, it's an upside-down kingdom, that in his kingdom, these things are flipped on their heads. By the way, I love the Beatitudes because they challenge me my thinking is kind of put sideways. But what I recognize is I've mourned. And if someone who is starting a kingdom says that mourning and grieving 
I'm going to take that in my kingdom. I think I want to pay attention to what he has to say. The final two Beatitudes are peacemaker and persecuted. Matthew chapter 5, 9 through 12 says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Again, Erin Herman last week, she preached a brilliant sermon on peacemakers. And you know, if you look at the list of beatitudes, you get to peacemaker and you think, aha, that's finally one that I want to do. I want to be a peacemaker. By the way, that sounds like a really great idea until you try it. Ever tried to be a peacemaker? You ever walk into a room where you can cut the tension with the light, uh, with a knife, and you can just see that people are on opposite sides and they hate each other, and you walk in and go, I've got a great idea. Let's have y'all hug and kiss. Come on, bring it in, bring it in. By the way, I'm absolutely convinced that peacemaking and persecution go hand in hand. I believe it. I think there's an order to the Beatitudes. You see, because if you're a peacemaker, you call people to a radical way of living. Because in the time of Jesus, exactly as it is today, if someone offends you, you take out a sword and you cut off their head. And Jesus says, in my kingdom, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those people who are going to step into the midst of things and call for a very unique thing. And that's radical forgiveness. Radical forgiveness. How do I know this doesn't end well? Because I've done it as a pastor many times. Where? Maybe a couple will come and see me. They're at total odds with each other. And they come in and they sit down and they begin to share their stories. And then I make a recommendation. And that is to forgive. Like true forgiveness. Not burying the hatchet to wake up the next day and pick it up and smack someone. But to honestly forgive. And I'm going to be completely blunt. I can't tell you how many times after recommending that I became the problem. I remembered saying to a couple groups of people, I said, isn't it funny? You came to meet with me because you had a problem. And now I'm the problem. How did that happen? You see, being a peacemaker is a very difficult thing. It's not easy. And yet Jesus says in his kingdom, I announce blessed. Blessed are the peacemakers. Now, one of my favorite Proverbs in the Older Testament, written by the smartest dude that ever lived, King Solomon. God came to Solomon and said, what do you want, Solomon? And Solomon said, I want wisdom. And God said to Solomon, because you didn't ask for wealth or power, you ask for wisdom, I'm going to give you wisdom, and you'll get both of those. You're going to get wealth and power. 
Here's one of my favorite Proverbs that deals directly with peacemaking. Like one who grabs a stray dog by the ears is someone who rushes into a quarrel not their own. All right, so look at it this way. The next time you see a stray dog next to 64, I want you to pull over on the freeway and I want you to run over to that dog and pick it up and shake it by the ears and see what it does. It's gonna come for your neck. And Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived, said, when people are fighting, just hold back and let them kill each other. Don't jump in the middle because it's like picking up a stray dog by the ears. And Jesus says, in my kingdom, there's going to be a group of people who are called to do just that. Blessed are the peacemakers. I think you can tell easily how peacemaker becomes persecuted. Could you imagine at UVA or on the job or in your family where someone has been coming to you and nursing a grudge and trying to get you on their side and you would say, hey, I have an idea. Why don't you forgive them? See how long that lasts. And I mean literally going to the person and saying, I know what you did to me, but I've hated your guts. Would you please forgive me? So Jesus shows up and he announces this upside down kingdom. And the last two are this, blessed are those who are the peacemakers. It's gonna be painful. And then blessed are the persecuted. By the way, in Greek, persecuted comes from the Greek word diako, from the root dio, which simply means to pursue, prosecute, and persecute, which means to press hard after, to literally pursue as one does a fleeing enemy. It means to chase, harass, vex, pressure, and was used for chasing down criminals. What a warm invitation into a kingdom. He said, if you follow me, people are going to want to do this to you too. So the question is, how do we put feet to our faith? And so we pick up our reading as we thought about peacemaking. Now let's take a look at being persecuted. In Matthew 5, 10 through 12, at the end of the Beatitudes, Jesus says this, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, this kingdom of the world will reject you, but the kingdom of heaven will warmly receive you. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. No one will pat you on the back here, but heaven will cheer. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So as I was thinking about this idea of being a peacemaker and being persecuted, there is a rule among rabbis, and that is this. When a rabbi gives a teaching, what you're supposed to do is to be able to follow the rabbi and they will put that teaching into practice. And if they don't, they're a false teacher. That's how it works. 
And so Jesus gives this inaugural beatitude, the nine of them, and he says the last two are, pers- are, are peacemaker and persecuted. Peacemaker and persecuted. So what I did was I stepped back, I looked at the four gospels, which are four different views of Jesus, and I thought to myself, where does Jesus walk this out? By the way, Christianity is completely unique. You cannot separate the teachings of Jesus from him. They have to go together. Other religions, you can take the teaching and you can live it separately, but you can't do that with Christianity. His teachings make zero sense unless you observe him. And so I thought to myself, what is the episode in the life of Jesus where these two come together? And there are probably many, but I kind of got very myopic about one. And as we put feet to our faith with this, I want us to look at the story of Jesus. And basically what he said is, if you follow me, you're going to run into trouble too. And that's John chapter 8, verses 2 through 11. It's the story of Jesus and the woman caught in adultery. I want to read it for us, and then we're going to talk about peacemaking and persecution. It says, at dawn, he, meaning Jesus, appeared again in the temple courts. By the way, the temple court is about a 40-acre plot of land known as Mount Zion in the middle of Jerusalem. If you ever take a tour to Israel, you will walk that 40 acres. It's where the temple of God is. And it says, where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. That's when a rabbi sits down, it means it's teaching time. He's getting ready to deliver some wisdom and some things about God. So Jesus sits down, he takes the posture of a rabbi, and it says the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group. By the way, pushing a pause button, she was most likely naked. They were completely shaming and humiliating her. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, in other words, they'd heard the Sermon on the Mount. They had heard about peacemaking, being meek. They had heard about his upside-down kingdom. And they bring this woman, and the text is clear. They say to him, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. So he's writing on the ground, stands up, and then he addresses them saying, all right, whoever's willing to throw the first stone, go ahead and do it. No one moves. So he goes back to writing again. And it says, at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. And Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? What a peacemaker. No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, go now and leave your life of sin. 
So let's get the context before we close in prayer. What we have is, is Jesus is on the Temple Mount, the most holy site of Judaism. Some religious leaders who are trying to trap him bring a naked woman so you know the crowd is looking. They no doubt yelled out loud, she was just caught in the act of adultery. I have a question for every woman in this room. Where's the injustice in this? Women, what's the injustice? Where's the dude? Nowhere to be found. If she's in the act of adultery, he was caught too. They let him go. So they're publicly shaming her, most likely naked. And they set a trap for this peacemaker guy. Let's see what he does. And the text is absolutely clear that when she stands in front of Jesus, he kneels in the dirt and begins to write with his finger. And they continue to harass him. What are you going to do, Jesus? The law of Moses says we need to stone her, which meant she would have been taken to the edge of the Temple Mount, thrown off a cliff, and if she survived, they would throw stones down at her. That's what that means. And the text is clear. Jesus writes in the, stand, in the sand, he stands up, he looks at the crowd, and he says, who's willing to throw the first stone? No one moves. So he continues to write in the, stand, the sand, and the text is clear that the older leave first. Now, what does that mean? In ancient Jewish culture, the elderly people get to be up front. They had a front row seat to the show. And when they look over, they see what Jesus wrote in the dirt. My favorite theologian says, I think I know what he wrote. She must die. They came up and they looked at that. And then Jesus looked at them and said, will you throw the first stone? And they're like, not me, man. The reason why is they're on the temple court and there are Roman soldiers lining the tops of porticos. And whoever tries to do something to her to kill her, you have to kill through Roman authority. And so if one of them were to grab her and try to throw her or begin to stone her, they would get arrested. And so what Jesus does is there would be two people arrested by the temple card, the one who accused her and the one who threw the first stone. And Jesus said, I will stand with her and I will accuse her, but who will stand with me and throw the first stone? I'm willing to be arrested with her. How about you? And by the way, you never want to be arrested by the Romans because it doesn't end well at all. So Jesus stands with her and says, I am willing to condemn her if you're willing to throw the first stone. And from the oldest to the youngest, they start backing off. And Jesus says... I will stand with her in her sin. How about you? And everyone leaves. And then the text tells us that Jesus looks at her and says, hey, uh, where are all the people that condemn you? And she goes, there's no one left. They're all gone. And Jesus, right then and there, was a peacemaker. He stood with someone who was utterly and completely guilty of sin, but he stood with her and everyone else left because they were unwilling to fulfill the law if it cost them something. So here Jesus is. He becomes this peacemaker. Can you imagine being her where your eyes are closed and you're just ready for someone to hurl you off the back 
of the Temple Mount and it never happens. And it's all because this rabbi from Galilee stood next to you and stood with you in your sin with the law of God directly over your head and you know what you deserve. And Jesus stands in that space and becomes a peacemaker. Now if you read the Gospel of John following this chapter, you know full well from then on the religious leaders said, he must die. We need to kill him. Because you see, when you are a true peacemaker, those that want to function like the kingdoms of this world get utterly exposed. You see, she was not on trial. They were. And they were found to be guilty. And she was found to be forgiven. The idea here is, is when you're a peacemaker and you recommend radical forgiveness, the kingdoms of this world will come against that with a ferocity like you can't believe. And yet in the kingdom, Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. And oh, by the way, if you do that, you'll get persecuted. But great is your reward in heaven. Let's stand together. As we conclude our time, I'm going to ask that you would close your eyes in God's presence. It would be hard to overstate the incredible impact that would happen and see the kingdom of God come here in Charlottesville if every woman and man here made the choice in this upside-down Jesus kingship kingdom where you said, I'll be a peacemaker even if it means I am persecuted. Could you imagine the radical transformation of our culture if we would stand with people, we don't excuse their sin, but we present a radical forgiveness that sets people free. God, I pray in this moment that you would help each one of us to be people of the upside down kingdom that the Beatitudes would be the things that are deeply embedded in our souls. And that each one of us would come to understand the good life. The good life. In Jesus' name.